podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people? That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to episode 300 of the Smart People Podcast. How are you out there? Hopefully you are enjoying the Washington Capitals run to the Stanley Cup. Yes, I can say that. John and I are Caps fans. We record this from right outside Verizon Stadium, basically, and I'm excited. But I'm even more excited about our guest this week to mark our 300th show, and we are opening up your mind. The odds are the topics we cover today will touch or be part of most everyone's lives who listens to this show. This week, we are interviewing Dr. Tracy Stein as we talk about things ranging from chronic pain all the way to hypnosis, biofeedback, binaural beats, and more. Yes, if you've heard of these but don't know what they are or have just not heard of them at all, this is the show for you. And of course, we go to the top of the top to bring our guest in this week. Dr. Tracy Stein is the former director of integrative medicine at Columbia University Medical Center. She is certified in clinical hypnosis. She has her own health psychology practice, and she has developed a course on integrated healthcare at Columbia University's Teachers College. She's also one of the experts at goodtherapy.org, a psychologytoday.com expert, and is the author of numerous books in the field. So like I said, she knows what she's talking about. Speaking of her numerous books, I just want to touch on a few. One that you might enjoy is the Everything Guide to Integrative Pain Management. And as we mentioned in this episode, that book actually covers a lot of the things we talk about today. Now, although we only talk about chronic pain for about a quarter of this episode, that's something that touches most people's lives. By the time you're sadly in your mid-30s, such as myself, things like your feet and your knees start cracking, your lower back obviously hurts, and that golf game really gives you some sore muscles. So Dr. Stein will talk about that. Additionally, if you suffer from things such as procrastination, healthy weight and body image, and specifically the big one, developing your intuition, we not only talk about that, but Dr. Stein has some amazing downloadable audio products that help with all of those things. So welcome to the new age as we talk integrative medicine, everything from intuition to hypnosis. Before we get into it, again, you can find us at smartpeoplepodcast.com and be sure to shoot us an email, smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. Let us know on this 300th episode, have we given you any value in your life? We've been getting these emails and I just really love them. So it's great to hear from you and we hope you enjoy this show for another 300 episodes. Here it is, our interview with Dr. Tracy Stein. Enjoy. There's so much here. We're talking about really this topic of integrative uh, medicine. And you you said something interesting when we first started talking. You said you consider yourself a specialized generalist. Did I get that right? Well, I, you know, close. Um, I said an ex- <laughs> that's okay. And I don't think there's any one right way. Yeah. Uh, so an expert generalist. Expert so, generalist. Yeah. Tell yeah. us what that means. So, you know, so my background prior to becoming a psychologist was in public health, which in and of itself tends to be generalized, right? Until you look at specific areas of population-based health. And then when you're, you know, if you're a psychologist, you can work individually as well. But, you know, the umbrella for integrative medicine and complementary and alternative therapies is so vast that it it encompasses all of these very um, diverse approaches. So everything from whole systems of healing, like Ayurveda or traditional Chinese medicine to, um, you know, manipulative body-based therapies like chiropractic and osteopathy to acupuncture, which is part of TCM, to dietary supplements, diet changes, meditation, energy healing, praying for your own uh, improved health. 
and a whole bunch of other stuff that I haven't even mentioned. So I don't think it's possible, at least for me anyway, to be an expert on everything related to each one of those individual things. I mean, we could spend a week on any one of those. But being an expert generalist means that I have a general sense of what's going on and, and know where to look for reputable information about these specific areas. Mm. And, I, and I also understand, too, what the limits of those um, sources of information might be. Integrative medicine, let's talk about this. What do you define it as? And when did it come into focus as opposed to the old school way of just treating symptoms? So, you know, unofficially, I think that, um, you know, we've always been a group of people that have relied on things that we would consider complementary or alternative, right? We, you know, our ancestors all came here from different places and many of us brought our traditional healing techniques techniques and approaches and philosophies with us. Um, there are things that we don't really think about as a therapy, like I said before, even praying for one's own health that would fall under that umbrella. Um, you know, so I was in integrative medicine until 2004. It, you know, it was a small, primarily research-oriented program at the time, but we also had a clinical services arm. And that's, you know, that I think that influenced, um, to some extent, the people who came there to see the now famous Dr. Oz for heart surgery. Mm. Um, so at that time, there was an Office of Alternative Medicine. And basically, Congress had um, appropriated money to study alternative therapies. And while I was working in integrative medicine, the um, OAM became the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine. And then a few years ago, it morphed into the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health. And so primarily what they're doing is getting a sense of what people are using, who uses what, and um, you know, expenditures, uh, annual expenditures on alternative and complementary medicines, um, problems with some things, um, what the evidence base is for and against certain therapies. But um, you know, it, it really has evolved as a scientific sub specialty, um, even though it's very diverse. Right. One of the things that strikes me about this idea of integrative medicine is the breadth of it. And and with that comes along some anxiety. Maybe it's just something that, as every, all the listeners know, I'm, I'm prone to, but the anxiety of which one is right. I mean, when there's so many tools in the toolbox, all of them be almost become burdensome as opposed to useful. How do you, especially given the vast amount of knowledge you have, how do you feel about so many things that you know have clinical application, but you might not be aware of, or uh, it's not even possible to utilize all of them? So uh, I'm going to try and do that question justice because it's, you know, I'm not even sure where to start, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but it's a great question. So if I'm looking for myself or someone in my immediate sphere, I will, you know, start with usually the condition and I will kind of get a sense of, you know, what is recommended conventionally and what the risk benefit ratio seems to be, what other therapies have been studied, what other things are people talking about anecdotally and, and, and go from there. You know, I, probably most people aren't going to do what I'm going to do and understandably, because I might be up till two in the morning reading about, you know, going down this rabbit hole um, about some specific therapy. Um, but for other people, you know, talking to their doctors, sometimes their doctors can be a great source of information. Other doctors will not be a great source of information or will be decidedly uncomfortable with complementary therapies. Mm. And and that's the, the difficulty, I think, in our modern world. Doctors get so specialized. I mean, all it is is treating the, the one thing, you know, the skin, the liver, the heart, the eyes. The, and, and would you say that that is actually against what integrative medicine is? You know, it's, it's interesting because you do get integrative providers who are very specialized, but I think maybe a key difference is that that integrative approach, you know, so one thing you asked me before, sorry, to define integrative and integrated, and I don't think I did that. Um, so integrative ideally is going to draw from the best 
of what's available in terms of complementary and conventional medical therapies. The ratio of that is going to change depending on, um, again, what seems to be most effective, what the risks or side effects we can expect are, what the person feels that they're willing to try, um, what they can afford one way or another, and that's, you know, the financial aspect is an important one. But the integrated part is being willing to be collaborative. So including other providers, whoever is important to the patient, whoever is relevant to their healthcare team. And, um, you know, so that those are things that are important. And I forget the other half of your question. Sorry. Oh, no, no, that's okay. It was just what are kind of the, the pros and cons of what we see so often now, which is you come in with something and we look at it as just the skin or just the eyes, as opposed to part of the body, part of the mind, what's going on underneath. Right. Um, so, you know, I think it's, I think there's value to people having a real depth of expertise in one area, right? It gives them an ability to look into things, you know, again, with greater detail than most of us will, will ever get to do. And that can reveal something important. I think the downside of that, though, is that you know, everybody has these independent little silos and the more depth of expertise you have in one area, the less likely you may be to know about other options, or you might even be, you know, of the mindset that, oh, other options aren't legitimate or they're not worth looking into, or it's only this. There's this, I'm going to paraphrase this now famous quote, but if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of a risk. Um, so, you know, there are many CAM providers who would be more open to other possible interpretations, but certainly some wouldn't be. Sure. Let's talk about what's your focus at the moment, given this um, broad scope that you have of knowledge and, and background. What are you now doing, excited about, and why? So I, you know, I had seen patients in my private practice after finishing my fellowship, and most of them were chronic pain and medically ill. And I still enjoy working with those issues. But at this point, I'm shifting more to teaching and to doing more writing. Um, I really like doing the hypnosis audio programs because I think that's a way to disseminate them to kind of the larger population. And I do believe that they're helpful. Um, so, but, you know, chronic pain patients certainly have been a, a population that can be receptive to complementary therapy approaches and, and often can benefit from them because the conventional approaches we have often don't do enough. When you mention chronic pain, I guess, luckily, I don't think I've dealt with a lot of that or seen it firsthand. What do we mean by that? And typically, what is the cause of chronic pain? Okay. So chronic pain, the definition varies a little bit, but it's pain that has persisted beyond three or six months. And it's it's pain that no longer has a useful purpose. So, you know, if you stick your hand on a hot stove accidentally and you pull it back because of the pain, that's useful. You're going to stop further tissue damage. And you're probably going to protect you know, your hand until it heals. So pain in that sense, in the acute sense, is useful and it's time limited. But with chronic pain, something goes awry. So it's damage to nerves or reorganization of the cortex of the brain. And and now there is um, this sensory experience that is not helpful and it can be very hard to treat. So um, that's that's what chronic pain is. You mentioned the brain there, which I'm really yes. interested in. I mean, when I think of chronic pain, I think of it as something like, yeah, I've I've lower back pain. It, it flares up fairly often, especially during golf season, and it's chronic, <laughs> so that's annoying, right? But I think I kind of know it's muscular, it's skeletal, or something like that. I'm assuming the type of chronic pain you're referring to is more like I hurt, but I don't know why. Is that right? Um, very often that will be why someone comes to see me. Just so you know, you have the most common type of pain in America, though. Oh, um, great. That chronic lower back pain, musculoskeletal pain. And it's actually one of the things people are most likely to use complementary therapies for. Um, so you're, you're in a very in-group. <laughs> well, then let's talk about it. What do you do typically? Somebody presents with something like, say, low back pain. 
what do you do to try to get at the core of what it is? Or are you just mostly concerned with, we don't need to know why it's there. We just need to fix it. Well, you know, most of the people who are going to come see me are going to see me because um, they're a neurologist or their um, pain physician has referred them if they're coming for chronic pain. And, um, you know, there are lots of mind-body techniques that are very helpful. You know, one thing you should know is that the data show that anxiety and depression actually worsen the experience of pain. It's a very real effect. Um, catastrophic thinking like, oh my God, this is so awful. It's never going to get better. That worsens pain. So addressing those things helps pain and addressing the pain tends to help with um, the mood and anxiety issues as well. But things like biofeedback, um, music therapy, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, meditation, these are all things that have been shown to help with pain. Hypnosis has been shown to help with pain. Um, and you know, with regard to your question about the brain before, some types of pain really are localized. You know, the, the, the problem is really localized to the site where you're feeling the pain. Other types of pain, there's going to be a change in the way the brain is um, interpreting signals from the periphery or the, the signals that it is sending to the periphery. And a lot of these mind-body therapies can kind of inhibit or lessen that signal so that people can feel more comfortable. But a, a multi-pronged approach tends to be most helpful with many of these pain conditions. For so many people who might not have experienced that type of chronic pain, we think of it as that we get hurt, we experience pain. It's a body's response, it makes sense. But what you're saying, if we can if we can help pain with things like hypnosis, uh, imagery, meditation, then is it more of a mental than a physical thing? You know, it's I'm, I think it's both. In some cases, it may be more mental. One of the things people it's funny. One of the things people get most defensive about is when their doctors say, I think you should go see somebody like Dr. Stein because she's going to be able to help you. Um you know, and they'll say, well, what, what, what does she do? And she's a psychologist and they say, but it's not in my head. Right. And, and so I always take it that if somebody tells me they're in pain, I take it as true. And my thought is let's try and help them to feel better on multiple levels and see what happens. But all pain is in our heads, right? Because we wouldn't feel pain at all without a brain. You just, you couldn't do it. And, you know, because of the way our brains work, we can feel pain in the absence of any physical problem. Wow. Um, and, but most of the time, a lot of times we're not really gonna get to the bottom of what's going on, at least in my office, in terms of, you know, if there's a tiny bit of impingement on a nerve or something like that. But sure. we will get to, helping people develop skills that can help them feel better generally, not just with regard to pain. I want to talk about some of the different mechanisms you mentioned that you utilize to, to work on pain and really in integrative medicine in general. So yeah. I, I know one of the things you are an expert on, you do a lot of your, I don't know the, the formal definition, but you're certified um, to do hypnosis. Hypnosis is something that we've never covered in 300 episodes here. <laughs> so let's get into it. First of all, what is hypnosis? So that is an excellent question. And I'm so glad you asked because there are a lot of misconceptions about hypnosis. Yeah. Um, so hypnosis really, it's, it's actually one of the most natural things in the world. And most people don't realize that. It's, it's basically a sense of enhanced inner absorption in something and decreased attention to other things and a heightened receptivity to suggestion. So for example, if you're working with somebody and you're doing hypnosis in a clinical setting, your absorption may be in what your therapist is saying, you know, the suggestions to enhance bodily comfort or decrease nausea or to feel more confident. And, and to decrease awareness to anything that's kind of irrelevant at the time. So that might mean the traffic outside or um, a nagging pain in your foot or um, the feeling of hunger even because you're not going to be able to attend to that for 50 minutes, let's say. Um, but people go in and out of trance states all the time and don't think of them as such. So when you're driving in the car and you're lost in thought and you're back at some party where you had a really great time and you're imagining a conversation you had, or maybe you're even imagining a different outcome to that same conversation, 
that's a trance state. That's a hypnotic state. It's an everyday trance. So part of you is still driving that car and might snap out of it five minutes later and say, oh my God, how did I, how did I keep this car on the road? Yeah. But there's another part of you that's been quite entranced. And same thing when you get really lost in a movie or a book, um, so much that you forget the outside world. And in, when you're really entranced, your body will respond to whatever you're attending to as if it's real. So it really doesn't matter if it's real or not. Mm. Um, so it's just a, it's a cool phenomenon. It's not mind control. It's not um, doing things that you don't want to do. In, in essence, all hypnosis really is self-hypnosis. So um, it, it's, it's an effective tool with actually a good body of research supporting its use for a variety of things. It's actually one of my favorite things to use clinically. Walk me through the process, perhaps, of utilizing hypnosis with a patient. Okay. So, you know, um, one thing that's interesting is some of the data shows that people may be more likely to be able to go into trance if you actually use the word hypnosis when you're explaining it to them. Um, and that sounds really simple, right? But it sets up an expectation of something to follow. It helps if people will um, report to you that they tend to easily go into these everyday trance states. So being able to kind of assess that is helpful, but helping people to get relaxed and comfortable and, and facilitate this inner focus, helping them to get a sense even before you go into trance of what it is they hope to accomplish and tailoring your, your um, verbal suggestions to them. Tell me a little bit more about that verbal suggestions piece. Would it, like, what okay. would that mean or, or what would be an example of one? I know we're getting in the weeds here, but I have no idea. No, you're not. So um, like say somebody says, I have a real fear of public speaking. And maybe before you even get into it with them hypnotically, you would assess, well, you know, walk me through what part of it is that feels most stressful or at what point do you notice a shift from calm to stressed? And what you're doing then is as you're, you know, you'll notice that even as you and I are talking, we can't see each other, but we're forming images based on our own uh, memories and impressions and what each other, which each of us is saying to the other person. And that's kind of happening during hypnosis, but in a more intense way. And so the word choice you would use, the pacing, so I would slow my voice down, um, your unconscious loves imagery, symbol, metaphor, wordplay. Um, and so the way I would describe something would use more of that. Um, so just imagining yourself moving forward in time to the point where, you know, you finish your talk and you're feeling really good and really confident in your own body. And, you know, notice how you feel and, you know, how relaxed your muscles are or the feeling of pride you have in the center of your chest. So you can actually get somebody to imaginally experience having achieved something that they want to achieve, but that another part of them is saying, you really can't do it. Mm -hmm. And as you do this, when you're, um, again, more receptive to hypnotic suggestion like that, you, it's your mind, your brain sees this almost as if you're actually doing it. So hypnotic suggestion isn't the same as just imagining something, although your imagination can certainly lead you into that. But, um, but, you know, there, there are lots of um, techniques like, so you, you were mentioning being anxious before, have, struggling with anxiety sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And so one well-known kind of way for handling that would be we could have you imagine looking at two computer screens side by side. And on one screen, you would see the thing that it is that makes you anxious. And maybe we would allow it to become clearer and clearer in that moment what it is. And you might even be surprised at what shows up, oh. right? So you're giving your unconscious mind permission to take a look at that, but from a safe distance. And then on the other computer screen, we could have you notice or imagine yourself stepping into the body of someone you imagine would feel really confident and be able to handle the situation extremely well. And we could even have you imaginally turn down the volume on the computer that or the TV screen that has the anxiety-provoking image on it, or change the channel. And so what happens is your conscious mind is taking 
these suggestions in, right? And saying, oh yeah, I get that, that makes sense to me. And your unconscious mind is taking it in at a deeper level. You are giving yourself permission to do that. And so even if your conscious mind drifted off and we might give you that suggestion, if you're somebody who tends to pick apart all the reasons you know, all the good stuff and focus on the negative, you know, that, that inner critic, if your inner critic is loud, maybe we would give you suggestions to kind of give that part of you a well-deserved vacation. Hmm. And over time, your mind would have this increasingly vivid image of success and um, mastery and change your perspective, change your relationship to this previously um, distressing image until it's wow. really not so relevant. I love the two computer screen idea. I could I could almost go through that on the fly as you were explaining <laughs> it. And and part of it's because I just I love this stuff. I want to get into it and learn more, but I mean is the idea that you can allow your brain to experience things given our I believe it's the part of our brain that does that is the prefrontal cortex where we can ex experience things that aren't actually happening. And so when we do that, the brain gets to go through it as if it's real. And if we do it right and accomplish it, then we will almost get the same feelings, emotions, satisfaction, etc. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if, if I may, the, you know, some in the hypnotic community, um, among hypnosis professionals, we would actually even say that things like anxiety and depression are, they're certainly not solely um, caused by trance, but that they are trance states in a way. And what I mean by that is that if you ever notice, if you're talking to somebody who's depressed, while they're depressed, if you ask them, you know, how last week was, it was terrible, or how hopeful they are about the future, you know, nothing's ever going to work out, why do I bother? And it's all these kind of hopeless cognitions. Um, and they become such firmly entrenched beliefs that it's hard to dissuade somebody from, you know, holding on to them. And they'll hold on to them and take them as true, even in the face of overwhelmingly contradictory evidence, including somebody else pointing out, well, hey, you know, but last week you actually had this great thing happen and you said that you were really happy and, you know, there's no reason why we shouldn't expect you'll be able to do these things in the future because you've actually done them. Hmm. And so we want to help somebody change those trancy messages, right? Because people are getting so caught up in this inner movie that might not be based in fact but it feels so real. So there, there are good trances and not so good trances. And, and that's kind of why hypnosis can kind of help you go in there where the issue is you know, very vivid and, and make an important change. And I think it can be a wonderful supplement to anything else you're doing. Yeah, the example you use there is so relevant that it, you couldn't have just pulled it out of thin air. This must be something you hear a lot or experience in patients, this idea that I feel as humans, because I see it and hear it so often, we focus on the negative, you know, 10x the amount of times we focus on the positive <laughs> due to our survival mechanisms, right? So I know this happens for me and I believe others, but you get one negative comment as opposed to 10 positive and that, that one is the one you focus on. But what you're saying is if we get stuck there, it's actually, and I can understand that, a state of trance almost. Yeah, it, it really is. And, you know, another kind of hypnotic device for that would be, you know, and the, the, you wouldn't want to do this with somebody who's really psychotic, but right. you're not. Right. Um, so I can, so I can do that. Hopefully none of your psychotic listeners are tuning in. <laughs> well, and if you so, are, stop driving or holding of, that None night. of them are psychotic. Yeah. <laughs> but, but um, you know, the, this idea of these multiple aspects of ourselves, right? And, I, and sometimes I'll talk to people like they're characters in a play, Right. And this one actor has been hogging center stage. And maybe that's the, you know, the naysayer or the hypervigilant person or wh however you would want to name it. And um, we'd be like, you know, that person is working so hard. And what about this other part of you, the part that is, you know, the Zen master or, you know, the you in 20 years who will already have figured out all of these things and be able to share their wisdom and experience with you? Would we like to invite them to step on center? center stage you know so we can we can be really creative with hypnosis in a way that may be different from other approaches you know so you know hypnotic 
techniques can be used conversationally. They don't require that somebody be in a deep, um, deep trance, mm. you know? So I, I think a lot of our conversations in general, especially for people who are more um, hypnotic, I'm going to say hypnotically adept because suggestible sometimes makes people think feeble-minded and that's not the case, but there are people who can, really make good use of hypnotic suggestion, but that may be also be vulnerable to um, the kind of negative input that they might get to. And we want to help them have other tools, other hypnotic tools for reframing. Sure. Do we know from a neurological perspective what it is about hypnosis that works? You know, so there are people who are doing more to study what's going on in the brain during hypnosis. And there are changes that happen in different areas of the brain. There's not just one area that would be engaged. Um, so Amir Raz is one of those people. Um, Mark Jensen at um, University of Washington is another person. He's actually done a lot to look at um chronic pain and hypnosis and what areas of the brain are engaged. And what he has found actually is that um, different types of suggestions to help with pain activate different parts of the brain differently. So um, he would be a better person to articulate it, but the, the specifics, but the, the, the issue is that, you know, what I heard most recently is that still we can tell that something different is going on when we know somebody is receiving hypnotic suggestion, but just by looking at an MRI alone, would we be able to say somebody is under hypnosis versus not? Not necessarily. So mm. I think there's really more for us um, to learn. Yeah, that makes sense. What's going on in the brain. This week's episode is brought to you by Casper. Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. With three mattress models, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential, Casper mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. Not to mention, the breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. And it's delivered right to your door in a small, how did they do that size box, with free shipping and returns in the US and Canada. But the best part is, you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. After all, you spend one-third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. Get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com smart and using smart at checkout. Again, that's casper.com smart and use offer code smart for $50 off your mattress purchase. Terms and conditions apply. And now back to the episode. One of the things I could see being extremely beneficial is really tailored hypnosis, which is when you need to go to a practitioner, right? But is there anything we can do on our own? I mean, I've even toyed around with the idea of creating my own audio tracks. Maybe it's a, um, not a mantra, but an affirmation or something. I haven't done it yet because I always want the best. So I'm like, what would the experts do? Right. That's why I started this show. Is there anything we can do from home or, or resources? I mean, I, this is a great time to mention you have some incredible um, audio programs on your website, drtracystein.com, and we'll link to that. So I Thank know you. we can we can find things like that. What else could we do on our own, if anything, to work with hypnosis? So you know, I, I tell people that they are their own experts. So I think if you're thinking of recording your own affirmations, by the way, which also have some evidence base, um, it's worth doing. And if you find that that's helpful for you to play back recordings of your own voice, um, telling you that in the present moment that you are and have achieved those things that you really want for yourself, that can be extremely powerful. Um, another thing is getting into your body and doing something rhythmic. So I don't know if you're a jogger. Um, I haven't been jogging in a while, but that in and of itself is very hypnotic. And I think if you set your intention ahead of time, you know, I feel very strong and healthy in my body. My body is my oldest companion and truest friend, regardless of whatever is going on for it in the moment. You know, that could be something that could also be a way to utilize self-hypnosis. It's, it's counter to what most people think of. 
but um, recording your own imagery. There are lots of books out there with um, guided imagery and self-hypnosis scripts. Hmm. Um, my audio programs I really like because they are so affirming. There is that thread of um, affirmation running through all of them. But um, yeah, there's lots of good stuff out there. Some other things that we have glazed over, but I want to talk more about because I'm just unfamiliar with them. Biofeedback. What is that? So biofeedback is, it's, it, it works on operant conditioning. So basically you get feedback from something in the environment that tells you when you are in a desired zone or performing a desired behavior or eliciting a desired response. And in this case, it's a computer. And so your body, you will be hooked up to some sort of completely painless leads. Um, and you may be practicing your meditation or shifting your posture to find out, you know, when you are clenching of muscle versus not, and you will get feedback from the computer that tells you, yes, you're doing what you're supposed to. Your brain will see this as a reward and keep seeking that reward by performing that desired behavior. So, um, People who, let's just say somebody comes in and they're saying, I'm really stressed and I need to manage my stress better. So um, I'm going to ask you, what do you think happens to your blood vessels when you're stressed? I'd say they constrict. You are actually 100% correct. All right. <laughs> and I feel like I want to give you a prize. All right. <laughs> um, just like your muscles do, right? And so if we were to attach um, a temperature sensor to your fingertip we would see that as you become more stressed and your blood vessels constrict, your peripheral temperature will go down. And on the computer screen, you can see, you know, in less than a second, pretty much in real time, the change in your temperature as you talk about something stressful or experience stress versus, um, you know, the, the increase in your peripheral temperature as you become more relaxed, whether you're focusing on your breathing or doing meditation or listening to guided imagery, and um, more blood flow goes to your your fingertips. Wow. And people become better and better at doing that, probably more quickly than you would imagine. So that's biofeedback in a nutshell. Yeah, I wonder if that's why my hands are always cold. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. It could be. You never know. That's just what my wife says anyways. I don't know. <laughs> um, another one kind of that I wanted to hear from you is binaural beat technology. Yeah, I, I love this and I use it personally. I've definitely recommended it to patients. There's less data for binaural beats than for biofeedback, but um, bio, binaural beats, literally binaural, the two ears. So um, basically your brain, wave, your brain has all these different brain waves, these frequencies happening all the time, but there may be predominant brave waves brainwave states in a particular area of your brain, et cetera, depending on what you're doing or how you're feeling. So um, for example, if you're in really deep sleep, like deep dreamless sleep, that would be delta characterized by very slow brainwave. So maybe like one or two hertz or cycles per second. So what binaural beat technology does is it tries to entrain your brain to get into a desired state more quickly when you want it to by the use of these um, audio programs. So you would pl pay, a, um, play two similar, but not quite the same tones, one in each ear. So maybe one ear, you, if you were trying to fall asleep, maybe you'd play a hundred Hertz tone in one ear and 102 Hertz tone in another ear. Your brain won't hear the separate tones. It hears the difference between them and say two Hertz. So there are lots of apps on the market that do that for you. You're not the one figuring it out. And some of them have nature sounds and or music that that's overlaid over that. Um, some have guided imagery overlaid onto that. Um, there are people like Dr. Jeffrey Thompson, who has a huge um, array of music and nature sounds that are overlaid over binaural beats. And I, I find that they work. Hmm. You know, people either really like them or they don't. Some people say, oh, it kind of gives me a headache. And other people will say, I love it. I've never fallen asleep so quickly. What else is it used for besides uh, sleep? So, um, so when you want to concentrate and be, you know, in a state of normal, alert, 
focused awareness, you probably want your predominant brainwave state to be like in the mid beta range. And so that's faster than say, you know, when you're meditating or when you are daydreaming even, but you don't want it to be too high where you'd be anxious. And so um, there are programs that are for concentration and focus, things like that. Mm -hmm. And um, I actually like one from the Monroe Institute and um, it's kind of got some new agey music and ocean waves over um, the the uh, probably mid-beta brainwave um, frequency. But, you know, there are also ones that are a little more sophisticated and they cycle. I think the Monroe Institute ones all cycle through a program um, and a lot of the apps do too, so that you're not, if you're meditating and you're deep into theta, which is, you know, just above delta and still pretty slow, you're not sloggy and, you know, foggy and, and mm. you know, barely able to function when you have to stop taking your break and get back to work. Yeah, I can imagine <laughs> that. They just leave you. They're like, okay, you're asleep. See you later. <laughs> Where you would just feel kind of hungover and awful if you had to get up and do something. Right. And that's the Monroe Institute. Like if we Google it, we can just find some of these. You can't. You can't. Now, I'm going to get some pushback from the non-woo-woo people because that's kind of at the more you know, new agey edge of the cam realm. But, Mm. you know, I think it's really helpful. And if people don't want to do it, they don't have to. But the Monroe Institute's been producing these things for a really long time. So I actually feel like they know what they're doing. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting as we talk about these different things, hypnosis, biofeedback, binaural beats, and what you just touched on there is, you know, some people are going to say that's, oh, that's too out there. But if I'm understanding correctly, a lot of your beliefs are, look, If you try things out, the ones that work for you will work for you. Like trust yourself, which is what we're going to get into a little bit, this intuition, but, and, and give certain things a shot and then trust the results. Is that fair? Absolutely. You know, and, and I, you know, there are times in my, my own life, my own healthcare where I've been more complimentary or more uh, conventional, you know, what integrative, even if you're really truly integrative and you're using some of this, some of that it might change as you change or as your condition changes or depending on what you're trying to manage or across the lifespan. And it doesn't have to be the same for three people with the same diagnosis or situation. Um, You know, it's really giving people some power to make decisions for themselves that feel right to them, but also hopefully in involving their whole healthcare team so that, you know, that they can have a team approach and, um, you know, try and decrease the likelihood of problems like drug interaction, drug supplement interactions, things like that, and increase the chances of feeling good and remaining healthy. I kind of alluded to it. The last thing I really want to dive into is this idea of intuition, because one of the things you talk a lot about, I know that one of your audio programs is developing your intuition how did you get into this idea of intuition and wanting others to understand it and develop it? So, you know, I, I have had intuitive experiences on and off my whole life. So I've always been interested in it, I think. And, you know, about the time I was working in integrative medicine, I noticed that it was probably more active. And I thought, you know, you know, like I, I'm one of these people that I am my own skeptic because I'll say, you know, are there other logical explanations for, you know, sensing this or feeling this or knowing this? Oh, good. So you feel that way too. Yeah. You know, so I, so this is one of the things I wanted to make sure I said to you today too about integrated medicine or anything. I don't treat anything like a religion. So I feel like, you know, there are going to be people at either end of the spectrum whose egos are so invested in it being one way. And I actually don't feel that way. I don't think about anything. So, you know, I'm open to other interpretations. I think if an outcome is meaningful to a particular person and enhances their well-being in some way, then that works for me. Um, But you know, I had a lot of experiences my whole life that would have been hard to explain any other way. And when I was in integrative medicine, I was in a setting where people were more open to that. There were, you know, there were energy healers coming in and out and things like that. So, you know, I was actually, remember I always used to joke and call me the anti-cam cam person because he'd say, mm-hmm. oh, you're too much, <laughs> you know, like you're at the other end of the spectrum. Um, but, but that's good. But 
around that time, I thought, you know, I want to understand this better and learn how to either develop it further or turn it off. Um, and I started doing more kind of formal study. And, um, and I think it's invaluable. I think it's just, you know, it's none of our senses is completely reliable and your intuition isn't either. But I think like most things, intuition is trainable. You know, there actually is more data than most people realize that intuition um, or that very psychic phenomena ha can, can work. Um, you know, our own government spent quite a lot of money and time studying and trying to use these tools. And, you know, they would say remote viewing, which is a very specific discipline. And for somebody who's super logical and systematic like yourself, that might feel like a better fit than something else that's less structured. What was that um, one called? Remote viewing. Hmm. Never heard of it. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting because um, every once in a while there will be things that pop up in the media, um, and you know now a lot of these government documents have been declassified, so it's something that you could look up on your own. There are lots of um, the original military people who did this work who teach it now, um, so anybody can learn it, and and who've written about their experiences. But it's actually a surprisingly systematic rigorous and data-based um, system for knowing things in a non-local way. Um, so they actually keep pretty detailed records and databases and track you know, who seems to be good at what specifically. Um, but you'd be surprised at how much the average person can gather just by having a, a system for gathering that type of information and for setting a clear intention. Hmm. So it's really not so woo-woo once you read about it. But again, if somebody feels very strongly one way or the other, you know, you're not likely to change right. their belief. But I'm not out to convert anybody. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So it's okay with me. Yeah, absolutely. So let's do this. Tell us how you define intuition. Because, of course, I think about it as just the gut feeling. But I'd love for somebody who studies this, what does it mean to you? So I would say intuition is knowing without knowing quite how you know, or knowing that takes place um, outside of the normal five senses. Um, for most people, their intuitive experiences are very mundane. They're you know, the unsexy kind of knowings, but that can be the most important to us. So a common example is like when people talk about mom's intuition, knowing when something's not okay with your child, even if they're far away, that's, that's surprisingly common. And um, I do think there's an extrasensory kind of thing to that. Yeah. Um, before the days of caller ID, you know, you would hear people say they, you know, they often knew who was calling even before they called, even if they hadn't heard from that person in years. Well, that's a type of intuitive knowing. Um, some people, you know, it's funny when you were talking about not liking the city before, I was kind of wondering mm -hmm. if you might be pretty naturally um, intuitive yourself, because a lot of people who are find those environments overwhelming because you you might be picking up on a lot of stuff that you're not realizing you're picking up on. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's funny. One of the reasons intuition is such a, I don't know, such an interest once we started talking about it and once I started thinking about it is because... I think I actively turn it off because of a lack of belief in it. And I remember actually somebody who helped change my mind, a previous guest of ours, talked about how we put so much emphasis on the brain these days, and it wasn't always that way. And he was talking about how, in fact, I don't know how long ago, call it a few hundred years ago, instead of headstones, when you die and they put the headstone, they would have navel stones. And so they would actually put the stone right that the thing on your grave over the the stomach area because they believe that was the source of knowledge and that right there you know <laughs> just thinking about it differently regardless of the science let's just throw it out there you know there's i believe there's some knowledge there and now all the understandings about the neurotransmitters in the gut how there's exponentially yes. more than in the brain i mean i really yes. think there is this this feeling this sixth sense if you will that we just aren't smart enough to put our hands on yet. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I kind of think like, of course, our bodies respond to all kinds of things, our thoughts, our feelings, but possibly other people's thoughts and feelings as well. And, um, you know, I, I can't tell you exactly. I don't know of anybody who can tell you where the information comes from. But 
you know, our bodies are kind of like antennas in a way. Um, and, you know, whether that's I, I just I just wrote up a, a blog post that'll come out talking about how stressed mice when they're stressed in a separate location and are brought back into the cage with unstressed mice, the unstressed mice become stressed. And, you know, there are lots of logical, earthly reasons why that would be, you know, observing the behavior, which is different when somebody's stressed. Right. Um, turns out these mice actually secrete particular pheromones that. Wow affect a specific cluster of neurons in the unstressed mice and that those unstressed mice can go stress out other unstressed mice later on. So, you know, there, there's something that isn't, is intangible that's going on that might be more earthly, but it's when there's no way that there's a physical mechanism and yet the information is still there that I would say, okay, that's, that's beyond what I can explain anyway by um, more mundane means. As we talked about this, I'm so curious now, how do we develop that? How do we increase our intuition? And when we do that, what do you feel the benefits are? So things that can help you increase your intuition are because um, you're going to use your brain as a tool. So um, meditation so that you kind of clear the mind because intuitive information usually is more subtle than what's going on in the world around us. Um, having and openness to experience rather than, you know, if you say things aren't possible, it's hard to take in any information that contradicts that, right? Um, imagery, things like that, you know, getting into a hypnotic state, there's some thought that maybe having a more kind of um, meditative um, alpha or theta brainwave state may facilitate getting into that space. I don't think that's true for everybody though. Like some people don't probably don't have that shift. Um, but practice and setting a clear intention. So it's kind of like if I wanted to go ask somebody on the street information, but I wanted a specific answer, I would ask a specific question. Because if I said, you know, hey, so-and-so, how are you? They might go on for 20 minutes and I might not get anything that I really wanted to know out of that. But if I said, you know, whose car is that parked over there? That's really specific. And when you ask your own intuitive self, for information, help it kind of narrow it down. Um, keep a journal so that you're able to kind of see, well, what things you tend to be more accurate about? How does information tend to present itself to you? And also because it's reinforcing, kind of like the biofeedback is, right? That you get some a feeling of reward, of, of pride or pleasure, or yay, I did it, um, when you see that you were successful. Mm. And so you could even I mean, you can use guided imagery and hypnosis and things like that. You can also practice on simple things like, you know, if you are going to go buy an old school newspaper tomorrow, what is going to be the main story above the fold? Now, that's something that, you know, is pretty immediate feedback, you know, I do. see how the information comes to you. Yeah, I was just thinking about that it would be a lot of fun. And as you develop it, what do you see the benefit being in your patients and in your own life? You know, it, it, again, I think for most people, it's going to be more mundane stuff like, you know, again, so if you're somebody with a medical illness and you see three different competent specialists and they all offer you something slightly different, sometimes after you've done all of your research, and again, I don't think intuition has to exist separately from logic or reason or knowledge. I think it can be a tool in your toolbox. Um, but kind of tuning in into your gut maybe and saying, okay, out of these three things, you know, when I imagine going forward with one of these providers, what do I notice? Yeah. Because sometimes, you know, things will look equal or might be, you know, out of, you know, a handful of babysitters, all of them have the same kind of caliber resume maybe, but you might get a feeling like, oh, I don't think I really want this person babysitting my kid. Mm. Or this person seems like a great fit. Or, you know, which of these few jobs might be most likely to make me happy six months down the road? Yeah, that last one was the thing that resonated with me the most, because one of the things I get asked a lot and have spoken about is this idea of finding a career you love and, and finding something you're passionate about. And it's tough. And the thing I always say is, first, you have to create some space. And, and people kind of get that, but I really think that only in space can you tap into that intuition. And it doesn't have to be a week or a month or a year, but I'm just saying like really try to remove yourself from all of the 
call them limiting belief, call them, I call them kind of the have to's, right? The things I have to do <laughs> or, or have to accomplish. And when you can remove that and then listen, oftentimes you can sense, in my opinion, and I'm speaking about uh, jobs specifically, which jobs resonate most with you. The problem I see is we too often don't listen to that because on the surface, the other jobs seem better. Maybe they're higher stature or more pay or something like that. Even though deep down in whatever emotion that is, we know which one's right. And I guess that's the intuition part. Absolutely. And, and you know, and again, I, there could be also your unconscious processing right. of some other data. And again, I don't think they have to be mutually exclusive, but I think you're absolutely right. You do kind of benefit from having a quieter mind so that all of the stuff that's your own kind of self-talk, which can be sometimes positive, sometimes not, or all of the other noise or the, you know, oh, on the surface, this looks great. It helps you to tune into the quiet responses you will have to um, to what might be best for you. Yeah, and um, it's so interesting. I, I don't know if we have time for this. this sure. This, uh, oh, I have time. There was, you know, Dean Radin, who's an experimental psychologist, who's very well known in the you know psi research community. He's brilliant. If you ever have a chance to hear him speak, oh, he's much more articulate than I am. <laughs> um, but uh, you know he's done a lot of this research, and um, you know that he was on TV the other night. I don't think it was the greatest um, portrayal of you know what he really knows. And but he was talking about experimentation that's been done, where um, they're called presentiment experiments. So being able to kind of sense what is coming before you have any way to otherwise know. And so, you know, in this um, work, he was talking about, you know, changes in your pupils, like your pupils dilating, which they will do um, when you are presented with something distressing versus a neutral image. And, you know, what he was showing is that, you know, several seconds before, you are presented with a randomly selected image, your body, as evidenced by the change in your pupils, will, will react. And it will react differently to, again, a neutral image versus a distressing one. And so if this reaction happens, you know, a few milliseconds to a few seconds beforehand, it means that some part of you has a sense of what's coming. Right. So I think that part of you is the part that can also say, you know what, this job looks great on paper, but how do I know, you know, what is my, what is my sense of what this might be like? And, and over time, look, we all make errors in judgment. We all have times when we ignore our intuition that the data even from that is really useful. It helps us to fine tune the use of that instrument over time. That is really useful. So much so that I'm thinking, okay, time to develop this intuition. And if you are <laughs> thinking that out there while you're listening, again, at your website, drtracystein.com, you've got these audio programs, Developing Your Intuition, Healthy Self-Esteem, Mindfulness Meditations. So um, head on over there. And then the book is The Everything Guide to Integrative Pain Management. And we were talking, but you said it's really not just a focus on pain management. It's almost a everything we've been discussing to some extent. Is that correct? Absolutely. It, I mean, it covers a wide range of integrative medicine approaches. And, and it, there's also a pretty extensive resource section that can help you find reputable information about a wide array of therapies and approaches that okay. can be helpful not only with pain, but, you know, mood and other things as well. That's the part I'm interested. In. I need those resources in a world of so much information I mean, that's why we started it is I'm trying to find the people that know where to go and then get it. Well, Tracy, I want to say again, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for the work that you do. Is there anything else that you have? Where are you blogging at? You said you're blogging and writing and stuff. So, yeah, I um, I need to catch up on my psychologytoday.com blogs, but that's under the heading of the integrationist. Um, and also I blog for goodtherapy.org and, um, periodically you'll see other stuff. I have a piece that just came out in Thrive Global, which is the sister site of HuffPost oh, okay. on, uh, on intuition and why it's worth developing your intuition. Great. All right. Well, you can find more about Tracy there. And again, uh, thank you so much for being on. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thanks, Tracy. Have a great one. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. 
Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Dr. Tracy Stein. Her book, The Everything Guide to Integrative Pain Management, can be found at your local bookstore and on Amazon. And as always, if you decide to purchase through Amazon, please don't forget to use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Just as a reminder, all purchases you make at that link come at no extra cost to you, and it greatly helps support the show. If you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review over there. If you'd like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. If you're looking to stay up to date on all things Smart People Podcast, head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter over there. We've got a lot of great interviews coming up, so make sure you stay tuned and we will see you all next episode.